Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Generally, and, and I understand what I'm about to say is a very general truth, but generally I think a great number of people and cultures attempt to find their meaning and their value in a lot of the same places. Maybe on the more conservative side of things, we could say that a lot of people try to find meaning and value through their family, that it's through the people that I have the, the closest physical relationship with on this earth that I look to to find my, my purpose, my meaning, my value, to understand who I am and how the world works and how I fit into all of that. I get all of that from my family. And as long as those relationships are maintained, everything else will fall into place. And other people might look at that line of thinking and view it as backwards or old-fashioned or whatever it might be and look more towards the individual and think you can't really count on your family. I mean, you don't even get to pick your family, so why look to them to find meaning instead? I want to try to find my meaning through the work that I do. And, and through the work that I do, I'll find people who are like-minded, who think like I do, have similar interests. And from that community, I can get a sense of who I am and how the world works and, and how I can make it in this world and that's a generalization but I think it generally tends to be true I don't think it's an accident that when we are meeting people for the first time some of our most common questions tend to be where are you from and what do you do the question of where are you from tries to get a sense of who a person is based on where they grew up based on the type of family they came out of and things like that the the question of what do you do tries to get a sense of who a person is through the work that they do through how they make a living and things like that. And those two things can give us a pretty clear idea of who a person is, what their foundation in life is most of the time. And I say all of that because in the passage of scripture we're going to look at today, Jesus will face opposition both from his family and from the religious establishment of his day, the authorities in the line of work that he is going into, so to speak. And we might think that approval from one or both of those groups would be pretty important to someone in Jesus' position. We might think that if I have the support of my family, then everything else will be okay. As I move out in the world, things might get difficult. I might face opposition, whatever it might be. But as long as I have the support of my family behind me, then I can know that everything is going to be okay. Or we might reject that and say, my family doesn't get it, my family doesn't understand, I'm going out, I'm doing my own thing, I'm going to find my own people, and as long as there are people out there in the world who think like I do, who are in the same line of work that I am in, who have the same sort of priorities, as long as they support me, then everything is going to be okay. That would maybe generally be how most people would tend to operate in the world, yet Jesus, it seems, is rarely like most people. Both his family and the religious authorities will have a problem in this passage with the things that Jesus is saying and doing, and so they will both, in their own ways, try to rein him in. But instead of acquiescing to one or both of them, Jesus rejects them. Instead of trying to appease those that he might think he should listen to, who might know better than he does, he opens up a different path, and he invites us to follow him down it. And Mark shows us this new path by weaving two stories together, which he will do a few different times throughout his gospel. He will lay two stories together a little bit like a sandwich. And that was 
a little bit of a test in case you'd tune me out and you're already thinking about lunch. I was hoping the word sandwich would maybe draw you back in. But Mark will start one story and get us thinking about that one story, and then he will kind of stop it midway through, and he will start telling us a second story. And he will tell us that second story, and right about the time he ends the second story, he will circle back around to the first story and wrap it up for us. And the reason why he does that is because those two stories tend to be related, and if we read them alongside one another, we can get a better appreciation of both of those stories. And that's what hap- what's happening in this passage we're going to look at today. Jesus' popularity is continuing to increase. Again, he's surrounded by a massive crowd in a home that is trying to hear what he is saying. But as that is happening, not everyone views that as a positive thing. And so in the first scene of this story I want to look at, in verses 20 to 22 of Mark chapter 3, uh, we get the objections that arise as Jesus' popularity continues to increase. And, and our kids that read scripture for us earlier are better than I do, than I am, because I'm cheating. I can read. I don't have this memorized. I'm reading the words off the back wall right now, just in case you thought I was as good at memorizing scripture as our kids are. But starting in verse 20, Mark tells us that then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, another name for Satan. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. If you were with us last week, you heard Rick walk us through the story in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus is teaching in a house, and the crowd is so big that the only way these four friends can get their friend who is paralyzed to Jesus is to go up on the roof and make a hole and lower their friend down in front of Jesus. And we have a pretty similar scene here. Jesus is again teaching in a house, Uh, We don't know for sure. It could be the very same house that he was in last week. He's got that nice skylight now to keep him warm as he's teaching. And the crowd is so big this time that Mark tells us the disciples are not able to eat. And I don't exactly know what that means. Maybe the crowd's too big. Peter can't get through the kitchen to get to the fridge. Maybe Andrews can't get to the microwave. Maybe James and John can't find a place to sit down at the table. Maybe Matthew's trying to eat in the living room and someone knocks over his drink. I don't know what it looks like. It probably didn't look like any of that. But for whatever reason, the crowd is continuing to grow and it is so full in this house that the disciples can't sit down, have a moment of peace to get a bite to eat. And if you were trying to start a religious movement... This would seem like a good problem to have, but not everyone sees it that way. And Jesus' family and the religious leaders want this to stop. So what's their problem? Well, let's start with the problems of Jesus' family. Mark tells us they go to take charge of him, and that is language for making someone do something they might not be in favor of doing. It's language for arresting someone, for taking someone and making them go somewhere or do something that they might not be in favor of doing. Strong language. But Jesus' family decides that this is necessary because they say he is out of his mind. And we don't fully know what they mean by that. Maybe they just think Jesus has gotten a little too big for his britches. You know, sure, Jesus, you've gone out, you've had your fun, you've sown your wild oats, you've pretended that you're some rabbi for a time, but you need to come home and be a productive member of society. And it it could be that, but I think it's maybe that and a little more. Later, we will find out that that it's Jesus' mother and brothers that are making this trip to try to take Jesus. There's no mention of Jesus' father. 
and we don't know for certain, but the assumption would be that if Jesus' father, earthly father Joseph, is not present in this story, the most likely explanation is that he has already died. And if Joseph has already died, well then culturally, Jesus, as the firstborn son of this family, has a responsibility to be the one to take responsibility for the home, to be the one that cares for his mother as she ages, to be the one that makes sure that his younger siblings have a firm foundation from which they can move out in the world. And Jesus is neglecting that. He's supposed to be the one to come home and take care of the family business. And to not do this is going to reflect poorly on him and their family, much less, or much more than that, it's going to leave the well-being of their family in jeopardy. So enough of this, this moonlighting as a rabbi, Jesus. You weren't even trained to be a rabbi. You were trained to be a carpenter by Joseph. So come home and do what you've been trained to do and take care of your mother. But it might go even beyond that. Because the, the family in Jesus' world is not only a group of people to care for, it's also the context within which God's law is to be taught and enforced. When you read through the book of Deuteronomy, the, the, the family is the first line of defense for, against disobedience to God. And so if Jesus is going around and saying things like he said in chapter 2 last week, that he has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he's either right and everyone should submit to him, or he's a blasphemer and needs to be put to death immediately. And no one in Jesus at this point is going to entertain the option that he might be right and he might actually be the son of God. So if you're Jesus' mother and brothers and you're catching wind of outlandish things that he is saying and doing, if you're hearing that he's beginning to make enemies with the religious establishment of the day, well then you have a powder keg on your hands that could go off at any moment. And you're obligated by Old Testament law to put a stop to this family member of yours that is teaching things contrary to God's law and leading others to do the same. And you better put a stop to it before the religious authorities do because the religious authorities will probably not be as kind to Jesus as you might be. So Jesus' earthly relatives set out to stop him. And as they make that journey, likely from their hometown of Nazareth to Capernaum, this city that is Jesus' home base ministry operations, we are told about the second group of people who are beginning to grow concerned about Jesus of Nazareth, these teachers of the law from Jerusalem. And up to this point, we have heard about people coming to listen to Jesus from Jerusalem, uh, we've heard about religious authorities being a little offended at things Jesus has said and done, but this is the first time we've been told about religious authorities from Jerusalem coming to check things out. This is an upping of the ante. This is like being told that your boss's boss is coming in to review how things are working day to day. This is like a delegation being sent from the state capitol to check things out in a community. This is like when your siblings have made a mess and now you have to bring mom to fix it. We're told back at the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 6 that the Pharisees and the Herodians, uh, po political and religious authorities in the day, have begun having conversations together about how they might try to get rid of Jesus. But we've moved a level up the chain of command. Jesus is creating a buzz, and so these teachers of the law from Jerusalem are here to investigate. And they have to investigate because they, they can't deny what Jesus is doing. They can't deny the miracles. There is a paralyzed man who can now walk, but they don't approve of that. 
And so they don't want to have to admit that this is legitimate and that Jesus is actually able to do these things because if so, they have to accept him and submit to him. And so instead, they are investigating in order to try to explain it away. Sure, Jesus has has done plenty of exorcisms up to this point. He's cast out plenty of demons. They can't deny that. But if they were to accept that this was legitimate, then that would upset their status quo. And so they say instead he has the power of Beelzebul, or another name for Satan. Now, Jesus was not the only person in his day casting out demons, and we know typically that how that process would work would be if you were trying to cast out a demon, you would try to invoke some spiritual power that was more powerful than that demon. And so if Jesus is casting out all these demons, he must have access to some higher authority, and, and they sure, they could say that that authority is God, but again, then they would have to admit that Jesus is right, and they don't want to do that. So their other option is to, is to say that he's being empowered by the power of Satan himself, which would just confirm their suspicions they already have that Jesus is someone who needs to be stopped. So this is the scene. We have two opponents, Jesus' family and the religious leaders, both trying to stop him for their own reasons, and Jesus will respond to them both in the rest of this passage, and we'll take those one at a time. First, we'll look at verses 23 to 30, where Jesus responds to the religious leaders. Mark tells us that Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Jesus hears these accusations and in response to them, he calls the religious leaders near. And Mark uses a specific word there that he only uses when he is about to introduce us to a significant action or statement from Jesus. It seems like in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus will call someone to him so that he can do something major. And so we can say generally, if you're reading through the Gospel of Mark and someone is being called near towards Jesus, he's about to do something pretty significant and it's either going to go really well or really poorly for whoever he is calling towards him. And in this situation, it goes poorly for the people Jesus is calling over. Because they've entered into a confrontation with Jesus. And just as a side note, if you're entering into a confrontation with Jesus, it's probably not going to end all that well for you. And so to respond, to enter into this confrontation and respond to these accusations made against him, Jesus does three things. He dismantles their argument, he explains himself, and then he gives them a warning. First, he dismantles their argument by exposing their flawed logic. It would be nonsensical for Satan to work against himself, just like it would make no sense for firefighters to show up at a burning building with a bucket of lighter fluid. A kingdom divided against itself will crumble. And so if Jesus is, not, is, is empowered by Satan, that would make absolutely no sense. And so he's not empowered by Satan. And if he is not, we have to think again about who he is and what he's doing. And Jesus does that for us. He says that he is like a thief. 
He says he is like someone that's broken into a house and is tying up the owner of that house so that then he can plunder that, that owner's treasure. And that might not sound like the nice, calm Jesus that we have hanging up in pictures, we have pictures of hanging up down our kid's wing. I don't ever remember, you know, as a kid being taught that, you know, Jesus is just like a thief, so be like Jesus or anything like that. But I think it captures pretty, something pretty significant about who Jesus is and what he does in the world. He's bringing the kingdom of God. He's establishing a beachhead through which God's spirit will invade all of creation. He has come to begin the defeat of these powers of sin and death that have enslaved humanity. Humanity has been trapped in those bonds have been trapped by the power of Satan ever since sin entered the world, and Jesus has come to set them, he's come to set us free. And so in order to do that, he first has to defeat the one who is holding us captive. And that is what he is doing in his ministry. And anyone who is opposed to that work is in danger of missing out on what he's come to bring into the world. And for that reason, he concludes with a warning. He says that anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have their sins forgiven. Anytime you talk about a sin that cannot be forgiven, it seems to raise some questions. It seems to make us a little nervous of whether, what this sin is and whether or not I'm accidentally guilty of having committed it. So what does Jesus mean here? Well, first we have to remember the context within which Jesus makes this statement. He's not offering a discourse on which sins he thinks are the really bad ones and which ones are so bad you can never come back from them. He's warning his opponents because they're looking at the good things that he is doing and saying that it is powered by the devil. That's the specific sin they're committing. That's the specific sin that Jesus is responding to here. It has less to do with some particularly heinous act that's just too much for grace to be able to cover. And it's more of a disposition that is so against what God is doing that you would never think to accept his grace. These religious leaders are so entrenched against Jesus that the repentance they should make that would lead to their forgiveness is nowhere on their radar. They don't think they need to be forgiven, and therefore they never will be. And that is the unforgivable sin. It's not an act God refuses to forgive, but a person that will not allow God to forgive them. And someone who's willing to look directly at the good work Jesus is doing and call good evil is so opposed to the grace of God, they will never experience it. And so I tell you all of that to tell you that if you've ever read this passage and thought, well, what's this unforgivable sin, and have I or someone else that I know committed it, I want you to know that there is such a thing as an unforgivable sin. But that only comes about when someone is so consistently aligned against God that they would never allow themselves to receive his grace. And the type of person who has sin that will not be forgiven is the type of person that looks at good and says that it is evil. And that sort of hardness of heart cuts us off from life with Jesus. And sadly, that is a thing that is theoretically possible of happening. And we shouldn't ignore that. But at the same time, anyone that has ever asked me if they are guilty of committing an unforgivable sin is not the kind of person who I would suspect actually is that against the grace of God. So instead of reading this passage and getting anxious, I think it should encourage us. Jesus has come to set us free. And that freedom is available to anyone who wants it. But if we remain opposed to that freedom, we will, we will miss it. 
we'll miss it even if we're a part of Jesus' physical family, which we get in the last few verses of this passage. After Jesus has dealt with the religious leaders, Mark tells us that Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. And standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Remember, the house is so full, no one can get inside. And, and so they send someone in to tell Jesus that they're there. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. To completely ignore your physical family in a public setting like this, as Jesus does here, would have been just as shameful, if not more, in Jesus' day than it would be in ours. The expectation in Jesus' day is that when your community comes together and tells you to do something, you submit to what they are telling you to do. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes the opposite direction. He disowns them. He says that his physical family is not his true family. He says that actually the people that are in his family are people that will listen to him. His true family are those that have responded to his message that the kingdom of God is here. His true family are those people crowded around him. And we live in a culture that's individualistic, and so we might read this and celebrate an independent spirit that's breaking free of the chains of society and family and whatever it might be. But this is unheard of in Jesus' day. And so is he telling us we have to disown our family entirely to follow him? Not necessarily, although he is drawing a, a significant contrast that we should listen to. He's not saying that God does not care about family. You would have a hard time reading the rest of the Bible and reaching the conclusion that God does not care about family. But the call of the kingdom of God is the most important calling we will ever hear. And nothing, not family, not anything else, should get in the way of that calling. When you begin following Jesus, you are brought into the people of God. You're brought into a new family, a new nation, a new kingdom. There are all sorts of images used to describe it. And that gives us different values and priorities. And there are plenty of times where those values and priorities run against the values and priorities of the world around us and the people closest to us. And when those things conflict, we always side with Jesus. No matter what that cost is. And that might not go well for us, that might bring misunderstanding, it might bring hostility, it might bring all sorts of things, but it is the price to pay and it is worth paying every time when we compare it to the riches of God's kingdom. Jesus takes priority over all things and relationships every time. And I understand that that is a much easier thing to say from a stage than it is to live out day to day. And we've been talking about what this actually means in our house this week and it means for us that if Whitney is ever in a position where she has to choose between me and Jesus, she's choosing Jesus. And it means that if Whitney and I are ever in a position where we have to choose between Jesus and Max, we are choosing Jesus. And I understand that's easy to say up here. It's much harder to even think about having to do in my own head, but those are the stakes that Jesus lays out here. We're not planning on having to make those choices. I pray that we never have to, but that's what Jesus says. And if that sounds like too much, I understand. It would be too much if it were coming from any other person that has ever set foot on this earth. 
Because someone who makes claims like this better know what they're saying, and they better have authority to back them up. And thankfully, Jesus does. He does not speak as someone demanding our absolute allegiance without asking any questions. He speaks as our Savior, who has come to set us free from the powers that hold us captive. And if Jesus sounds like he's making things a matter of life and death in these verses, it's because he is. And it's because they are. He's come to bring us life. And we should not let anything get in the way of that life. Only people that accept Jesus are welcome in his family. There's no fast pass into the kingdom of God. You don't get to jump the line if you have a pre-existing condition. He's looking for those who will commit to follow him full stop. And that sounds narrow and difficult, and I understand that, but I think from another angle, it is very freeing to hear. And we get that by looking at this last verse one more time. Jesus concludes this passage by saying, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. It is absolutely true. Only those that accept Jesus are called his, are welcome in his family. But what that also means is that all that is needed to join Jesus' family is to accept him. Anyone who commits to do the will of God receives the honor of being called a part of the family of God. And if you were sitting down and reading through the gospel of Mark and hearing what Jesus says here and wondering, okay, what is this will of God that we're supposed to be doing? What we've been told up to this point as the summary of Jesus' ministry and preaching is to repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus' kingdom has come. And it's a kingdom that will do away with all suffering and injustice and disease and it will make all things right in due time as God originally intended his creation to function. It's a kingdom that promises eternal life that starts here and now as we partner with God in his task of making all things new. Only people that accept Jesus are welcome into that kingdom. But all that is needed to be welcome into that kingdom is to repent. You don't need to be born into the right family. And at the same time, being born into the right family doesn't get you any special privileges. You don't need good deeds to earn favor. And at the same time, if you've done a lot of good deeds, that doesn't get you ahead. You don't need to go through an initiation process. Actually, elaborate processes might just get in the way. Jesus has come to bring us freedom. He's come to bind the strong man so that he might plunder his treasure. And in case you didn't pick it up when Jesus was saying those words, what he's saying there is that you are that treasure. He has come to bring you life. He's come to set you free. And it is only that freedom, that life, it's only available to those that repent, but all that you have to do to receive it is to repent. So no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how much of following Jesus you may or may not have figured out, Jesus invites us to repent, to submit to him, and to have life. He calls us to give up our own agenda so we can take hold of the agenda of the kingdom of God. He calls us to repent of our sin and our selfishness and our arrogance and our pride and our greed and our lust and our envy and our selfishness. And I already said that, I know, but our idolatry. To repent of anything and everything that, repent, that prevents us from drawing near to Jesus so that we might be welcomed into his family. And if that sounds different from what you were, what you were expecting, I understand. It tends to be the case with Jesus, that he breaks our expectations. 
But when Jesus breaks our expectations, we can either be agitated by it and wonder why he is the way that he is, or we can accept what he says. And we can take his invitation to lay down life on our terms so we can have freedom within his kingdom. And for some, that might sound too good to be true. It might seem like I've done too much, I've gone too far, it shouldn't be possible for me to be accepted. And if that's you... Jesus is inviting you into his family. All you have to do is repent. And for some of us, it might seem too easy. It might seem like I've got a pretty good resume. I should be at the front of the line. I should be an authority. Jesus should be happy to have me as a part of his people. And to those of us that might have that perspective, Jesus tells us the same message. To repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. And the simplicity of that message might cause us to wonder if it's worth it. If it's that simple, then is it truly worth it? Are there better options out there? Are there more impressive routes to take? Can Jesus actually be trusted? What about this message that he calls us to follow? Doesn't it need to catch up with the times or whatever it might be? We might wonder what those around us might think if we actually take him seriously. And that's understandable. Jesus tells us to count the cost before we commit to following him. He tells us to to run the numbers and decide whether or not it is actually worth it for us to follow him. But it is a cost, I am here to tell you, that is always worth paying. So don't let your hesitations get in the way. H.G. Wells once said that for most people, the voice of their neighbors is louder than the voice of God. And I don't know what voice it might be for you. Maybe it's the voice of coworkers or family members or a trusted mentor. Whatever that voice is, if it is calling you away from Jesus, it is not a voice worth listening to. So whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever voices you are hearing, if you have a decision to make, if you have a commitment to Jesus that you need to make today, if you need to pass through the waters of baptism, whatever it might be, sin to repent of, Whatever it is, each and every one of us are invited to repent, to draw to Jesus, so that we might have life in his kingdom. And may we do that well so that we can have the life we've been created for. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've sent your son so that we might have life. We thank you that he's drawn near to us so that we might draw near to you. So God, we ask for your wisdom. For those of us that have never followed you, God, would you reveal to us who you are so that we might have life? For those of us that have followed you in the past and are struggling right now, God, help us to to draw near to you, to get rid of the things pulling us away from you so that we might have life. God, for, for each and every one of us, we ask that you would encourage us, strengthen us so that we might walk in life with you, life in your kingdom, life in your new creation, wherever it leads. We ask all this because of and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.